Hey, thanks for tuning in to Supply Chain, the secret sauce of business for every business. If you don't have a good supply chain, you're missing the secret sauce. This podcast is also on our YouTube channel, Supply Chain, the secret sauce. So if you want to check out the video, please do that. We try to bring you the best in supply chain, the most innovative, the most interesting people. So stay tuned. Hey, everyone. Today we're talking to JHL Solutions, Julie Lassau, Big Box Retail. We're going to talk about sourcing, private label, product development, some cool stuff. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to Supply Chain, the Secret Sauce. On today's show, very special guest today. I'm really excited. So we're going to talk about retail, which is and an interesting animal in itself. And on the show today, we have Julie Lassau. is an accomplished retail executive with 20 plus years of experience in the disciplines of sourcing, merchandising, inventory planning, and analytics. As the founder and principal of JHL Solutions, Julie helps businesses navigate the complex world of global retail sourcing and private label product development. By supporting retailers and suppliers in finding, developing products, and better negotiating with each other. Before establishing her business, Julie held progressive leadership roles at Target Corporation. Julie, welcome to the show. Wade, thanks so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. It's great to have you here. We're going to talk retail, big box. Woohoo. <laughs> What's going on in that area of, of the Nothing world? Nothing at all. I mean, there never is, really. It's, it's kind of boring. <laughs> Post COVID, things are a little bit different. So let's let's kind of get right into it. What are some trends that you're seeing with the retail big box today around maybe sustainability? Let's just pick that. Yeah, happy to start with sustainability. And if you don't mind, I'll just take half a step backwards and, and talk about why that's a priority within the, the business that I run today. So as you shared, I grew up professionally at Target. And one of the jobs that I especially loved, and probably is my favorite job that I ever had at Target, was I was the director of sourcing for their seasonal businesses. So if you've been in the Target store, it's that back part of the store where you can get everything from a Halloween costume to an Easter basket to string lights. And I sat in that role for six years and I loved every season that we navigated. I loved the team that I worked with, both the vendor partners, but also the global partners that we used to source that business. But I really struggled because over time I built up what I started to call green guilt. Because if you think of that back part of the store, I, I worked with some really amazing teams internally and externally to bring products to the floor that were used for maybe a few weeks, few months, and in some cases like a Halloween costume for a few hours if you're lucky. And often at the end of that use, the home for that product was the landfill. Mm. And I just didn't feel great about it. And as a team, we really did our best to make sustainable choices and, and have the, the minimum impact on the environment that we could. But when I stepped outside of Target and launched my own consulting business, I told myself that there was an opportunity for me to help show up and work with retailers and their supplier partners to have a more positive impact on the environment, where the products were made, how the products were being used, and ultimately uh, helping to find a home for those products that wasn't a landfill. And so I started to get really excited about the concepts of circularity or the circular economy or zero waste. It goes by a few different monikers. And so that is something I've built into the practice that I have today. And the idea is 
that if you think through the product lifecycle, including packaging of the goods that you make, how can you create opportunities to close circles of waste and how the products are reduced, uh, reducing pollution or consumption? Are you using little, if any, new raw materials when you're making the product or the packaging? And as the consumer's using that product, has it really been designed so that it can have an optimum length of life? And then when that product is being done by that initial consumer, is there a place that it can go that isn't the landfill? And there's a few different ways that that can, that can manifest itself. It could be composted or recycled or even kept to a higher purpose. Could you ultimately resell that product? And so when you ask the bigger question about what are some of the trends in sustainability, I have been really pleased to see that over the last few years, you're starting to see more and more adoption with retailers and their brand partners around this idea of circularity and zero waste. How do we create these ecosystems, design really very intentionally these ecosystems that help have products, whether they're um, things that you wear, like sweater, bookcase, or they're food that you consume. So in that case, it's, it's often more regenerative, but how are we really being thoughtful about the resources that go into the growing the food that we are consuming and then also being really thoughtful in the package that transports that food through the supply chain? Yeah, yeah. You know, you think about it like Gap is now reselling clothes. Um, they're just big box retailers are getting into areas that you didn't see in the past. And, you know, with Target, they've got food, they've got, uh, you know, consumable goods, they, they've got the, the clothing. So so it's really interesting how people are, are looking at sustainability differently. Um, Absolutely. Well, Target did does have a resale program as well, but also within their own brand space. So I would say my my additional passion and an area of focus within my business is the own brand and private label space. Uh, Target, among with others, had really taken strong stances in building out their own brand portfolios as zero waste. So they're very thoughtful on the ingredients that go into the food, again, the packaging elements of it, as well as their, their non-consumable goods. And when you develop own brands, there's several different strategies that you could employ, but often now you're seeing that those own brands that are the differentiators, kind of think the Trader Joe's model where you can't find this item anywhere else, part of the brand commitment or the brand elements that these uh, products are designed into is with a more sustainable perspective. When in it, that will vary certainly depending on the product type and in the, the master brand or the retailer as well. But uh, that's been really fun to see. Uh, is that continues to deepen and flourish and the expertise within the businesses and their partners also continues to expand. Do you see growth in the uh, one level down, like, you know, taking the product that you would sell at your store and then sending it to like a TJ Maxx or other retailer or other, other outlet? Is that growing as well? Is, is that a way people find solutions for their products? Absolutely. So there's the the groups like TJ Maxx that will, will take um, extra runs or overproduction in addition to some of the brands that are designed intentionally to go straight to a TJ Maxx. But then the resale model that you brought, brought up a few minutes ago, that's also really gaining in popularity. And what's interesting about that is that the economics for resale aren't working exactly how we expected them to. So to, to break that down a little bit more, in the luxury space, for example, there was a concern that if you put uh, a resale uh, Chanel or Louis Vuitton uh, in, in the, the market, that it would diminish the brand and make it look less, less aspirational. Right. But what those brands have found is that you're actually bringing in a brand new customer. You've got your top tier customer who's willing to pay 
full price tag, full retail, stand in line, get on the waiting list because they want that item the minute it comes out. And then there's the more aspirational or maybe upwardly mobile customer who's excited about the brand, but isn't choosing to prioritize spending all that money. They might not have it, but or they're making the choice not to invest in it the minute it comes out, but they might want to invest in a more timeless piece that they can buy and resell and they can keep it forever. Or they could keep it for two or three years, but they're more thoughtful in how they purchase it because the idea will then be, how do I maybe maintain the resale value of this item and sell it again myself? Mm-hmm. So the upper end of, of the, the product ladder, that's a really interesting way that resale has, has come in and started to develop even more deeply than people anticipated or quelling some of the fears that people might have had at the, at the outset before some of the, the business cases started to prove themselves out. Then on the lower end of the spectrum, the conversation was really around like, why on earth would a Target or Gap have a resale program? That just seems kind of silly or even H&M for that example. Um, because their products were much less expensive and how much are you really going to get for resale? And is it going to be worth the trouble of, of putting uh, resold products from mass back into circulation? Uh, so a couple of things we found there. One, it's a way that resale can start to unwind some of the impact of fast fashion. So H&M is, is really doing what they can to help reduce the impact of waste that that comes from their business model. They want people to be excited about the latest and greatest. They want people to be moving through their wardrobe. So I think you can make an argument that their business model itself isn't very circular. But with the space they're choosing to occupy in the marketplace, when they do provide resale as an option, recycling as an option, they are taking steps towards a greater degree of circularity. They're being more thoughtful in their product designs of how items can be more easily recycled as opposed to product designs that don't lend themselves to be recycled at all. Uh, So I think across the spectrum, people are finding different ways within their organizations to show up as more circular. And sometimes it starts with what we like to call like circular-ish type steps that aren't fully circular, but it it is a start. And I think that there's there's a space to recognize and applaud those efforts as well, while recognizing that there there are bigger issues with consumerism and how much we're purchasing. But at least we need to be thinking about the options and starting to shift the design perspective. And that's been really fun to see in retail and resale within retail specifically. Yeah, I think that's an interesting trend and an interesting outlet that not a lot of brands may be aware of. Right. Um, And especially the emerging new brands in the marketplace, um, you know, even that. And I'm a question for you here. What is the distribution channel like for getting to a TJ Maxx or getting to a discounter? I mean, is there... Are there brokers in that market? Um, do you know the landscape very well in that market? Just curious. Uh, not with like a TJ Maxx specifically, um, how that that gets laid out. But if you're thinking about uh, resale models, there's a couple of different ones that are, are pretty interesting. So there's businesses like Trove, for example. They're they're a bit of the OG when it comes to resale. So they worked with REI. I believe they're in Patagonia's program. Eileen Fisher, some of the earlier companies that were prioritizing circularity and they actually will serve as the as the conduit so product gets sent back to them they warehouse it they are um, sellers of record even if their platform ties into for example REI's or Patagonia's sites um, they, they manage essentially the whole thing in connectivity and partnership with REI and then there's other programs um, that are more uh, build-ons that allow uh, peer-to-peer sales. So consumers are able to sell their products back directly and the consumers are the ones that are selling it to the people who buy the product. So in that case, the retailer doesn't 
take on the inventory risk at all. So it's a pretty minimal cost to them. And they'll work with an external company usually that has built out a platform that just gets built right into their platform. So it's really about creating more of a space for the consumers to find each other and shop. But the, the risk, as I said, is greatly minimized, which is a solution that works really well for someone like a Target whose products aren't coming in at super high retails to begin with. So they really want to minimize the, the cost that they're they're leveraging. Yeah, yeah, like everything but the house. And there's all these little emerging kind of, to your point, where the consumer can go and, and unload some stuff, as well as brands can unload some things uh, at those sites too. That's a great point. Thank you for your knowledge on that. That was, uh, I thought, very interesting because it is uh, a topic that a lot of brands just are trying to figure out. So appreciate that. And as we keep on the trend um, conversation, let's talk about some of the trends that you're seeing in the retailers that they're navigating with other countries where things are produced and how to get through this tariff issues and all the supply chain disruption that's going on. I'm sure it'd be a very hot topic if you can share anything about trends in that area. Yeah, happy to. Well, I think what's been interesting over the last handful of years is certainly what COVID has brought to light or the responses to the, the COVID emergence world are the places where our supply chains had gotten fairly brittle. And then when you have a massive black swan event, you see pretty quickly where, where you're pressure testing, where those those uh, points of inflection really need to be. Uh, and I would say over the last 18 months, once we've moved out of that initial high urgency, let's just figure out what we can figure out. And now we're moving more into, I would call more midterm and then even slightly long-term thinking about how do we reestablish or what do we want to reestablish as our, our go forward approach. I'm seeing a lot more flexibility get built back into those supply chains. So you touched on a couple other contributing factors. So the rigidity of supply chains, tariffs, that certainly it existed pre-COVID as we were trying to navigate and understand as a, a sourcing community. Um, how do we want to build out that total cost of ownership? How do we want to think about where our partners need to be? And now layer on top of that, not only the tariff piece, but how do we want to build our supply chain so it's as flexible as it could be and we can meet the needs of our customers where they are. And in some cases, that's because we want to reduce cost overall because we're navigating inflationary pressures. In some cases, it can go back to the sustainability impact that we talked about of if your products are produced closer to you, if the components are closer to you, for example, you might need to produce less products. So you have less risk of markdowns. You have the product get transported less distance. So there's less freight cost, freight expense. Yeah. And the trends that we're seeing increasingly are taking a long, hard look at China. Uh, we're recording this in, in Q1 of 2023. And I would say tensions are not fantastic. There's been some flashpoints and it, there, there's a chance that the relationship could deteriorate very quickly. Uh, likely, I think it'll be more stabilized in this slightly antagonistic space for a while. Um, but if you are a retailer or a brand that's sourcing out of China, uh, the old philosophy of having your primary production in China and then have a China plus one strategy as your backup sourcing strategy is now a little short-sighted. Mm -hmm. And you might need to think about what are some ways that you could drastically reimagine re your supply chain and what those partnerships look like. Um, so solutions that are becoming more attractive than they've ever been are nearshoring. So whether that's bringing production back to the U.S., specifically, or more the Americas in general. You're seeing a lot more of that. And even uh, business partners that have business in China are looking to produce and source in the Americas. So they're diversifying their own 
country or production strategy. And I think that's, if anything is a giveaway or a tell that that's a compelling strategy to be exploring, it's the fact that uh, people who would normally produce in China or her, whose business grew up in China are now looking for diversification opportunities that are outside of China proper or even Southeast Asia. Like that's a pretty major trend that's that's really interesting to see because there's new dynamics that are making that possible that were never possible before. So so an example of that is that the, for example, manufacturing jobs coming back to the US aren't the same jobs that left in the 70s and 80s that were highly manual, low to moderate skilled work. Those aren't the jobs that are coming back. The factories that are coming back now are high-tech factories. They're high-skilled. They require much less labor, which makes sense based on the, the labor market in the U.S. just now and what it'll look like for the foreseeable future. So the new combination, the new way that manufacturing is showing up is meaning that the financials are also looking very different. The economies of scale of what type of production are you able to make that's that's compelling and competitive when you look, uh, when you look to other countries of production, the U.S. is starting to stack up in a newly more competitive way, or even, like I said, more broadly, the Americas are, are more competitive than, than they have been in just a few years ago. Yeah, yeah. And some of the, uh, the Asian uh, and other parts of the world are filling up, right, from a production capacity standpoint. So it is interesting. Yeah. Vietnam is full. <laughs> I hate to break it to you, but as we were navigating TPP, that was certainly a, a, an early and often uh, asked and visited question is, can we, are there other countries that we can move to where we can get all the same benefits of China, but have it not be China? And there is, there isn't another China. Yeah. <laughs> you know, is going to continue to develop and deepen um, their global manufacturing partnerships and supply partnerships. But that is going, that economy broadly is going to look very different from China. Vietnam, as I mentioned, I mean, it's, the scale is just so much smaller. Um, that those aren't the easy solutions. Going next door to China is also not the not the way to find find a solution. In many cases, it might be your your backup, yeah. but you don't want to you don't want to dis discount the idea of thinking it through in a completely new way. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and you're right. Your total supply chain cost to serve is is really coming into front picture uh, and seeing what the value is of being domestic. Uh, versus, you know, spending the money on, on logistics and all that sort of stuff that goes into being farther away. So awesome. Cool. And you talked about economy. So I want to kind of hone in too on that very important question about <laughs> what inflation doing in this world to the supply chains of big box retail and and where do you see leaders kind of focusing right now? Obviously, cost management is, is a big item, but, uh, you know, kind of what are you seeing in trends on, on the inflation front? Well, again, as of recording, we are still navigating the fallout of the the bank. I don't think we can call them bailouts, but yeah. <laughs> the resolution yeah. of some, some bank insolvency and instability. And so uh, hard to tell exactly where that's going to land. It seems like that's fairly contained for now. So if we go on with the expectation that we are, are navigating the inflation pressures that we have, what I will say is that inflation is certainly stabilizing. There's places where it's it's still increasing, but within the retail and the consumer goods space, we're starting to see certainly pockets of stability. And in some cases, we're starting to see some materials start to come back down, mm -hmm. which is exciting to see. Uh, the other thing that's very interesting to note is that depending on the, the space that you occup occupy in retail, there are 
different levers that you can start to pull. So if you're negotiating, you're looking to drive incremental value for your consumers and bring your retails down on shelves so that your, your consumers are getting a greater value. Um, I would encourage you to look beyond cost and really thinking about total value that you're starting to drive. So it's it's not true across the board, but for you're starting to hear consumer product companies talk about how they aren't accepting more cost increases, how they're starting to pass on cost increases. They're also starting to fund promotions more aggressively. So if there's a marketing budget, uh, a packaging redesign, if there's different ways, again, that you can show up and add value to your consumers. I encourage you to have some of those conversations and think creatively when you are going through those negotiations for a reset or you get asked by your retailer how to think about things differently. Or on the retail side, if you are going to your your supplier partners and outlining a really purposeful approach to creating more value for your customers, think outside the box, think outside the cost box. Um, but certainly we are seeing some parts of uh, of inflation, like I said, moderating coming down. So you can certainly start there, uh, but don't stop there. That's what I would suggest. Yeah, no, that's that's a great point. Uh, the value stream and how you navigate that is just as important as cost. Well, to point that out, because um, you see so many companies focus on cost and and then forget about adding value, and that that's a really good point. And I think you know there there was some as you look at the space, right? There's there's some opportunities where you see people are just saying, hey, you know what? We we're not successful in this area. It's time to just shut that area down and move into the area that we're really good at to your point about value know where you're adding value and where you're not so that was that was a great point as well um you know we were kind of running long on time but uh any last thoughts on this because i know this is a hot topic so i want to give you an opportunity to just is there anything else you wanted to add on that inflation side i would say that one of my favorite negotiation leaders of all time, Daniel Duty, who I met at Target and I've had the great fortune to continue to work with, even in my post-Target days. One of the questions that he always suggested to ask some version of when you are negotiating with someone is how do I become your favorite partner? And am I getting the best deal that you're able to offer others? And that to me, I think communicates a really fantastic amount of business empathy and it, it can spur some more creative problem solving when you try to think of how to offer value as opposed to having the negotiation being all about someone winning and someone losing. Right. So that's the other thing that I would offer in the inflation space is we're still feeling some of the after effects of the stabilization following COVID as we're starting to see inflation imperfectly or inconsistently uh, be, be neutralized. How are you trying to show up better. And I think you'll be surprised to see the additional value or the incremental value you're able to drive that you weren't even looking for. Great point, Julia. Win-win. And what can we do as a supply chain to create savings? Awesome. Awesome comment. Well, Julie has a website and it's uh, www.jhl-solutions.com. Anything else you want to add about your business, Julie, and how people can get a hold of you? I'd be happy to. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Wade. I am frequently on LinkedIn. I'd be more than thrilled to talk to anyone in your audience if they have retail questions, circularity questions. Clearly, I get pretty excited about the own brand space as well. So please do feel free to reach out. Uh, I know my name is probably in the show notes and whatnot, but I'm Julie Lasso. So J-U-L-I-L-A-S-S-O-W. Uh, you'll be able to find me on LinkedIn. I'm the only one. So please feel free to reach out through there. Or as you mentioned, on the website, there's a fair amount of uh, insights and, and conversations that I've had around these these same spaces of retail circularity and own brands. And hopefully that will be of, of value and interest to your community. 
Thank you. Yeah, I'll put all that information in the link below. And uh, thank you very much, Julie. Appreciate you being on the show. Oh, it was a delight, Wade. Thanks so much for having me. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode. Really appreciate your support. Wanted to let you know, www.supplychainthesecretsauce. It's where you can find all the podcasts as well as subscription-based supply chain consulting. We are supply chain rapid scale experts at Supply Chain Secret Sauce. We repair, strengthen, and bulletproof supply chains for companies growing at an exponential pace. You can find us at www.supplychainsecretsauce.com. Again, thank you for tuning in. Have a great day.